Welcome back to Ghostly Talk. This is Scott L. This is Amber. Yeah. Turkey Week. Thanksgiving. Happy <laughs> Thanksgiving, everyone. <laughs> is, how do you I do don't it? like it. You go like this. <laughs> dying turkeys. There's a dying turkey. A couple of dying turkeys. Dying turkeys. Uh, yeah, interesting. I think it's going to be interesting this year for, I know for our family at least, because we're going to be doing the, uh, the social distancing thing yeah. for Thanksgiving. Uh, and... Oh, well, congr- I have to congratulate myself because I've had now I am on test number five for my COVID negative. test this year. Negative, negative, of course. Yeah. Um, Just because you keep getting strange afflictions. Well, I was feeling rough last week. I spent the weekend laid back and rested. Laid back. With my mind, mind on my money. Oh, my, my God. Mind, my oh, sorry. God, that was terrible. <laughs> sorry. Um, it came right into my head. <laughs> I spent last weekend resting, not this past weekend, but the weekend before. And I thought I was getting better. Went back at it, like started working out again hard and made myself sick again. So I thought, oh, well, I definitely have COVID this time. And I went and had the test done again, the rapid one at least. And I had the actual long-term one too that I should be hearing from soon. And it came up negative again. So negative, negative, negative. But I'm that, this is getting to be a paranoia thing for me though. Well, yeah, but you know, we do, I'm not going to say any names or locations, but we do know someone who is quite young who's been hospitalized for the past week. Yeah. And that's very close to us. Very scary. Yeah. So this is, I mean, I'm not arguing for anything here, but I don't know. That's what we're doing this year. But, you know, you mentioned that you, you mentioned that off the air, Amber. Yeah. Thanksgiving can be a big damn pain in the butt. I don't like it. It's my least favorite holiday. I'm not into football. I could care less about what football team wins. I don't I'm, even know if they're I'm doing with, football I'm, this year. Are they? I don't know. Or is there just no one? Are the guys playing, but there's no one in the stadium? I don't know how that works. But I, no, I have no idea because I turkey is dry, and turkey is never who who's making turkey it, for you. It's usually not a, a, a super fun meat. It's like my least favorite, or unless it's deep fried. A deep fried turkey, slightly different story. But she's talking dirty. Scary. She's talking dirty, guys. It's, it's kind of scary to deep fry turkey. So you, I like stuffing. I get excited about stuffing. I like uh, buttery garlic mashed potatoes. Just keep going. I like. Yeah. I do like green bean casserole, but a lot of people don't. But they're, that's, they're, they're 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 wrong. That's that's you're just wrong. You're not a nice person. You're, not, you're only, just wrong. I didn't used to though because it's a mushroom base. And There's I nothing don't like wrong. Mushrooms. Green bean casserole rules. And but that's the only time that I will eat that particular casserole because why would I make that for any reason during the year? For, well, why? Why would you, you mention this idea that it's a big pain in the butt? Corn, and been, some corn. Some, <laughs> I like corn. You want, you want me to just uh, quiet down and let you just finish this? <laughs> I don't like the thread. canned cranberry sauce. That's gross. Cranberry, cranberry like on it. a Bart. I don't Come like on. how it takes the shape of the can. Like, at least cut it up and do something to make it look like it didn't come out of the can. Yeah, like yeah, that's pretty shameless. Like it's still got the ridge marks yeah, from the can. It's gross. Um, Never gets eaten. It's this thing that happens every year, and I have to agree with this, Amber, because, um, like, my family. Like, obviously, I'm getting older, and that means my parents are getting older. And this conversation has to happen every year, right? And I've suggested Taco Bar, and no one has yeah, taken that. That happened on the last year, yet. and we got shot Top down. Yeah. We, we got shot down last year on that one. I'm still holding the grudge Shoots on that. down a Taco Bar. Uh, that's what I'm like. We, we, and we did, I think we may have even talked about this last year. We said, we, went, we came to our family and said, hey, we're going, we, we suggest a taco bar. Everybody just bring an ingredient. And, and nacho. A nacho. Nacho. Nachos. Okay. 
So, oh, so okay. Instead of having to prepare a whole dish and bring it in a cellophane wrap thing to keep it warm and all and that crap, bunch of dumb. Leftovers. All you gotta do is all you gotta do is chop up some green peppers and bring them in, bring them in a thing. Yeah. yeah okay. Someone else bring some queso dip. Yeah, and then someone else brings some lettuce, and someone mm, bring the shells, geez. and then before you know, it, you got a whole taco bar. So we thought, okay, this is brilliant. Yeah, this is absolutely brilliant. And delicious. We're, we're there and delicious, of course. Um, and we got shot down. Like the idea, the idea, it was on the table. I think we almost won. We almost, we almost won. It was on the table. We got shot down like right before midnight. Yeah. Literally, like right before we were going to pass the bill, right before midnight, we got shot down. And I am a little... Well, then it got weird anyway, because your sister had a baby the next, the day before. Was it the day before? Yes, it was the day before. So then that kind of shook up Thanksgiving anyway. Like they weren't there because Well, yeah, she was in the hospital. Yeah. (laughs) So... I know, but every year we have this, and that's what I said. We said to my to my mother, I'll just flat say it, Mom L. Um, every year this happens, and I say, Mom, you know, you guys have been doing this. You you guys have been doing Thanksgiving at your house traditionally now for over forty years. That's how old I am. Oh my god! Um, and I'm like, okay, just either we can do it at my house or we can do something way easier. And that's why I think the Taco Bell came up. Oh, Taco the Taco Bell. Bell. The Taco Bell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my mind. We're just gonna gutter. hit Taco Bell. We're gonna go even lower. Um, <laughs> no, that's why we said the taco, the taco bar last year. Because I'm like, okay, this will make this will yeah, take easy. all the work off you. And, easy and delicious. And they and you know what? Even even with the baby coming into the world at that time, still wanted to do autumn. It. She still did. And I and I'm like, I'm, and I flat out said, I'm like, I'm not gonna. Some people. I'm not gonna sit here and make feel bad about this when you're sitting here sweating no. and you're and you're moaning because you're tired because we told you you don't need to yeah, do it. I know, but some people like they don't want to give up that tradition. Like the tradition itself means something to them, and I respect that. And I get it, but I'm I'm willing to just start throwing that tradition right out the door. Like, I well, we are this year. So it's a good it's a good stepping stone then. So instead of instead, of, I guess we're just gonna drink our Thanksgiving dinner this year. That's I guess that's what's gonna happen. My mom's actually gonna make something for us. I thought she was still gonna make she's a making, turkey because she bought one. She's making she's making food for us, and we're gonna go there and pick it up. Yeah, and bring fine. it back to our house. That's fine. So she didn't have to do that though either. She didn't have to do that either. I told her like you don't need to do that, but she's gonna do that anyway. So that's gonna be our Thanksgiving. I wish that was really exciting for you guys all to hear. <laughs> I'm tired. Anyway, no, we had a we had a riot tonight um go ahead amber it was Floor a deep, it was this was a deep dive show man yeah I'm so if you are into science fiction uh particularly authors hp lovecraft isaac asim you know hold up he was saying asimov yeah and i say asimov but i think isaac was a russian and i don't know if i'm saying that wrong i've always said isaac asimov i've always said asimov also so i don't know i don't know anyway uh, I'll just keep saying Asimov because that's how I, Asimov, I've tied it. Um, but Asimov, Lovecraft, Asimov, Asimov, and William Gibson, who is a newer author. Well, he's still alive. Still out alive. Of the three. Eighty-two years old. Yeah. So, anyway, the like the whole question I felt was like throughout the whole show: Are we going in the way of the futures predicted by the top sci-fi authors mentioned? Are we going down a dark, dark path with robots and what alien life form? potentially means and well, aliens well, are a hot aliens. topic right now i know we didn't touch on any of that really with what's going on in the the government and disclosure so and much to talk about with always, this subject oh my god and, and yeah. yeah and trying to limit rain in our show so it's not three hours because we could easily talk for three hours we could have spent an hour on each author yeah and then some yeah 
So, and of course, we'll have John back uh, for future books when he's, because he's working, his next book is all, um, exclusively Lovecraft. Yeah. And of course, Love, I didn't even get a chance to ask him what he thinks about, like, The Color Out of Space, the movie. Oh, yeah. We were disappointed in that. I wasn't Like, impressed. I didn't hate it. No, that was fun. Because that's a really abstract story to begin with, that this alien can only be described as a color that's undescribable. Yeah. So that's right there, that concept. How do you put that into something visual? Well, I, I think that's why I probably made, it's a made, challenging a, better, movie. made a better story to yeah. write. Well, because your brain to... can just do its thing. Yeah, and that's what makes some of these things don't need to be put on the yeah. big screen. I, they, some things just leave them on paper. I don't think that, like, Nicolas Cage was okay in it. Oh, yeah, drinking drinking uh, llama, or what was it, drinking alpaca milk. That was probably my favorite scene from the movie, the I don't alpaca. Even remember that. Oh, it was ridiculous. Uh, but no, that, that's a that's great flick. I agree. Uh, but yeah, that's something. Whatever. Yeah, and then there was the uh, uh, Lovecraft Country that's on HBO right now, and I only that's saw a hot thing now. People I only are saw three episodes of it. It was kind of, um, it wasn't keeping my attention. Like I, if I start looking at my phone, I'm like, oh, I'm, oh, this isn't really like maybe my thing. Yeah. And plus, I talked to some friends who said that it started to get really brutal to the point of being uncomfortable. So I'm like, ugh, I don't know if I need to watch it. Like, I hate sometimes seeing things that you can't unsee. And you're like, great, that's in the head now. Yeah. Cool. But so anyway, John I... John Stebbin we talked to yeah. tonight. Fantastic guy. Yeah, uh, and he he's uh, a scholar of H.P. Lovecraft, science fiction, fantasy lit- literature. He's got a handful of books out there, and we're talking about his new book, Aliens, Robots, and Virtual Reality Idols in the Science Fiction of H.P. Lovecraft, Isaac Asimov, and William Gibson. Um, we had him on, I think that was like two years ago. A couple years ago, yeah. Yeah, and that was for one of his Lovecraft books. Uh, I think first... it was for H.P. Lovecraft and the Black Magical Tradition. That was his first book, yeah. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so enjoy our show with John Steadman. Back with us, author and researcher John L. Stedman. And the last time we had him on the show, it was that was a couple years ago, I think. A couple years ago, and we were talking about H.P. Lovecraft. And I think that even now in 2020, H.P. Lovecraft is even more popular thanks to shows like Lovecraft Country on HBO. Mm -hmm. um, You know, all that kind of stuff in the media. But he's got a new book that he sent us to discuss, which I completely devoured in the past two days. So that's like the only thing in my head right now is Lovecraft, Asimov, Gibson. Like I'm going to keep repeating that Lovecraft, all night. Lovecraft, Asimov, Asimov Gibson. Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> and his new book, Aliens, Robots, and Virtual Reality Idols in the Science Fiction of H.P. Lovecraft, Isaac Asimov, William Gibson. <laughs> so we're so happy to have you back on the show to talk about everything that's in this book. Because this book is dense. And for anybody out there that's a sci-fi lover, if they love these three authors, which are 
sort of the elite sci-fi authors Very, out there. Um, the trifecta, I think yeah. you you need to get this book, especially if you've read all of these authors. But anyway, thank you, John, for coming on, and let's we got to start dissecting this right now. Okay, well, thank you very much. You know, it's a very a pleasure coming on. You know, this book I've actually been reading rereading it myself over the last couple of days. You know, just to prepare for this because yeah. I've just finished my third book already, and I start on my fourth book. So, you know, when you get that far ahead, you have to kind of revisit you where do. you were, like two books ago, you know, and stuff. But this book is, I, I know as you call it dense, but it is kind of packed with a lot of information. I hope it's actually fun information. I try and write these things so the people that read these will actually enjoy reading them, you know. But you do get a lot of information in my book, you know, so you get your money's worth. I thought this one was a little pricey compared to my other one, but yeah. it's actually it's actually worth the, the cost, you know. There's a whole bunch of information, and there's like a lot of speculations and ideas, you know, some of them cutting-edge ideas, and so I think it'll be a real fun trip for anybody that reads it. No, and I can say that if you are not familiar with some of these authors, like I was not, I know Asimov, but I've never read any of his stuff. I honestly did not know William Gibson. I had to look him up. And reading the segments about them, like, I didn't feel like I had to have read their books to get something from what you wrote. So um, that's the good thing. And the only thing I've read is a lot of his Lovecraft. Yeah, Lovecraft. Yeah. I think, well, I think yeah, it's, it, go ahead. Everybody's read Lovecraft. You know, but the interesting thing about that is that, uh, uh, about that is like, a, a people have misconceptions. They'll have kind of vague ideas like about Asimuth. Most people think about him as being like, the creator of robots and like a future where there's all these kind of sunny worlds, beautiful kind of worlds where robots and humans are in harmony with one another and stuff. But Love uh, Asimuth is a very dark writer, especially toward the end of his life. And that's what I deal with basically the robot novels and then the last two foundation novels. And he gets very dark there. And we'll talk specifically about what I mean. As for Gibson, Gibson's about 82 years old right now. Mm -hmm. And he made his first big splash with Neuromancer, you know, yeah. a long time ago. And he just put out a book recently. It was It's called Agency. He's got like a, a new uh, trilogy going on. It's called the Peripheral Trilogy. And the Peripheral came out like around 2017, I think. And it's been a while since Gibson. He's been working on the second installment. And that just came out like in spring of this year. You know, so Gibson is still very productive. And uh, so if you read my chapter on Gibson, if you don't know anything about him or if you need a refresher, it's great because it'll get you right up to snuff and then you can kind of ease into reading the new books. I hope that when people read my book, they'll be so enthusiastic about the, the authors, they'll actually go to the source documents. I mean, people that have read Lovecraft or Asimov, I hope we read them or revisit them, you know, because I want to kind of encourage people to get back to those source documents because these uh, works of, are actually works of art by all three of these authors. And I am hoping that I kind of encourage people to go to those documents. So two of the things I wanted to discuss, and this is like, you know, the, probably the top layer of the book here, John. Uh, but I, I, I want to dive into these ideas because I do find them fascinating. Um, and I guess the first one we can approach is the idea of indifferent, you know, I am going to totally. Indifferentism. Thank you very much. Indifferentism uh, when it comes to extraterrestrials. And, th and that's in Lovecraft's work, right? This idea yeah. of indifferentism. L explain this, if you could, please, to us. I, I want to hear this yeah. from, you, from, from your mouth, like what this, what this means. Well, in the old days, he used to say Lovecraft was a proponent of cosmic 
indifferentism, which means that the cosmos is just not interested in human beings. There isn't like a God out there that's interested in human beings. And we're kind of on our own, basically, and we're rather insignificant. But I've changed that to mean alien indifferentism, because think about it logically for a minute. The cosmos is actually something that really can't be indifferent to anything. It's like saying the moon is indifferent to me, or the planet Venus is indifferent to me, or the outer space is indifferent to me. These are just simply things. They're extension yeah. out there and the objects in it. So I change it to alien indifferentism. And in Lovecraft, I also note that uh, it's kind of tinged with malevolence because sometimes they're totally the entities in the Lovecraftian pantheon are totally indifferent to human humankind. And that's usually the trans-dimensional. You'll notice when I did the chapter, I broke down Lovecraft's aliens into extraterrestrial, trans-dimensional, and then terrestrial aliens. Yeah. And the uh, the trans-dimensional aliens like Cthulhu mm-hmm. and Yogg-Sothoth, the ones that inhabit alternate dimensions in our, in our, our same space-time continuum, of course. But, but these entities are... Uh, are, are like phenomenon, so they're totally indifferent to us. They're as indifferent to us as like a virtual particle that suddenly springs into being. Mm-hmm. You know, it gets enough rat, rest mass energy to spring into being, so it's no longer a virtual particle. It's actually a, an existing particle. Well, these things are like that. They spring in and out of our our dimension, our universe, like quantum effects, basically. But they are largely indifferent, but also uh, a lot of these aliens are actually malevolent as well. Like Cthulhu, who's actually one of the transdimensional entities, he actually comes into our, our dimension temporarily in the call of Cthulhu. And what does he do? There's people there on his island, and he immediately kills them all in really unusual ways, you know. So sometimes they're maleficent. They don't like humans at all. They kind of view humans as kind of like an infestation a lot of times, the way we might swat a bee or something that's trying to sting us. But a lot of times it's just pure indifferentism. So I call it alien indifferentism because there has to be something out there that's indifferent to us. It can't just be the cosmos or the moon. Okay, and then there's the idea in the book also of inclusionism. Now, this is more related to inclusionism when it comes to extraterrestrials, and this is in Asimov and Gibson's work. Explain this, please. Yeah, well, what I argue in the book, there are two big uh, theses in this book. You know, the alien indifferentism isn't my main point. You know, that's been around like for, you know, for decades. Mm -hmm. People view that as being part of Lovecraft. The main thing in my book are, are two main points. One, the aliens in all three of these writers... Mm-hmm. where they're actual Lovecraft aliens or the aliens in Asimuth. The aliens in Asimuth are robots, basically. Yeah. So they're human-created robots, positronic robots. Mm-hmm. And what they do is there's humanoid ones that kind of look like humans, but they're obviously robots. They're, they're metallic. They have glowing red eyes. And then there's the humaniform robots, which look just like you and me. And there's not too many of those in Asimuth's universe. But those two actually evolve. They start out as being... Uh, beneficent because they've been included into human culture and society by the people that leave the earth. On earth, they're actually very strongly distrusted, so they're kind of banned from the cities on earth. Yeah. They kind of work outside the cities. But when they uh, hum- humankind first moves out into the cosmos, they take robots with them, and the robots help them set up their civilizations. But the thing is that they, over time, the second 
the main point is that they become, over time, they evolve into alien entities. They become self-actualized because they're very close to humans. And then once they become self-actualized, they start pursuing, they become aliens. And they start pursuing agendas that aren't human agendas at all, which we'll talk about in more detail. So in, in those books, my thesis there is that although they start out as being included, alien inclusionism into our civilization they eventually become aliens and then that's where the indifference and the malice creeps in just like in lovecraft's works so there isn't really much different in the long run between lovecraft's alien indifferentism mm -hmm. and asimov's inclusionism because it's the end result is the same thing they evolve into these monsters they don't look like monsters, but they evolve into monsters that actually work against humankind's interests. Now, when it comes to Gibson, Gibson's got his VR. Gibson doesn't deal with robots. He doesn't deal with aliens. What he deals with is uh, VR, virtual reality constructs, and sometimes holographic concepts. And we see the same pattern in Gibson's works, too. His VR idols, over time, the closer they get to being included in human society, they, too... Uh, become self-actualized and then they evolve into the same kinds of monsters that we see in the other ones and then they work against the in interests of humankind. So in the works of the latter two authors, Asimuth and Gibson's, we have alien uh, inclusionism that actually turns out to be something very similar, if not even more troubling than uh, Lovecraft's alien indifferentism. And you're right. I mean, both these ideas do end badly for <laughs> us fleshy ones <laughs> it ends up with dead humans basically either way um but my question about that john especially when it comes to asimov's robots and gibson's vr and things like that and artificial intelligence um it always seems like these stories are written you know what I, and i i'll say i think it's a bit prophetic in, in a lot of ways so i'm not saying i don't i don't take it seriously because i do uh but it always seems like this stuff ends on a down note like that. Like when, like you said, when a machine, a robot becomes self-actualized or self-aware, right? Um, it always seems like the, in these stories, they always go the bad way. And, and they want to do things that are bad to humans, which, I mean, given a lot of things I see these days, I don't really... I, I kind of see wh where they're coming from. <laughs> but but it's like, it always seems like they're they're against their creators where as opposed to okay well now i'm self-aware i can do even cooler things for my creators i've never seen that I, that angle taken yeah, it seems. Not, like yeah it becomes well, self-aware that, that, that is friends. taken what's that 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 angle is taken like in asimus works like okay. what happens is, like when i talk about how uh danielle Olival and Giscard Revenlaw, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing these names correctly, but these two are two robots. One's a human, humaniform robot, one's a humanoid robot. Mm -hmm. And what they do is they actually, through a series of conversations and their own sharing of their insights, and most of this happens in the uh, novel Robots and Empire, but Asimuth lays the foundation for this even earlier in, in one of his short stories. Uh, from the 60s, you know, but what happens is that they actually take it upon themselves to start, once they become self-actualized, they tr they actually do think that they have humankind's interests in heart, but what they do is they, between the two of them, and Giscard is a telepathic robot, by the way, and he developed his telepathy Whoa. 
due to a quantum effect, basically. It just happened. Kind of like the way at, uh, Gibson's alien entities, a lot of them become self-actualizing aliens due to quantum effects at all. It's just something that happens due to somebody fiddling around with the programs or fiddling around with the robots, and then it just kind of happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, neither Asimuth or Gibson can explain how that happens. You know, but what, what happens with the robots since we're talking about them specifically, is that they actually do have humans' interest in heart, but then they go a little too far between the both of them. Now, you know what the three laws of robotics are. Ask them with three laws of robotics, don't you? I, I read or, them. Don't, don't. I yeah. can't quote them, well, though. <laughs> I can quote them. Good. The first one is that uh, no, human, no, a, no robot can harm a human being or through inaction cause a human being to come to harm. That's the first law. The second one is no a robot must obey whatever a human tells it except if it conflicts with the first law. So if I commanded a robot to kill a human being, it couldn't do it because it can't harm a human being. And then the third law is a robot can protect its own existence except if it conflicts with the first and second laws. Now those who are hardwired into every positronic robot to protect humankind. Yeah. And just as an aside, by the way, in Gibson's world, he's got these VR entities. They evolve into uh, alienized entities. He has no three laws for his virtual reality. So they have their own judgment right from the beginning. So they can hurt us. They can do whatever they want. Just, and we find out when we read Gibson that they take advantage of that tremendously. But getting back to Asimuth, yeah. the robots are bound by the, the second laws. But what's really cool in the latter books are they actually talk themselves out into creating a, a, another law, which they call the Zeroth Law, and it's based on the word zero. So if you've got one, two, three for the three laws, the zero law supersedes all the other laws. It's at the very top of the number line, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that law is no robot can actually harm humanity, humanity in the abstract, or through inaction, allow humanity to come to harm. Now, you see how this is, gives them a lot of wiggle room there, because they've actually reinterpreting uh, harming human beings to harming humanity in general. And at that point, that's where they become dangerous, because that means they can judge what harms humanity and what helps humanity. And you've known a lot of people in the past, people such as Adolf Hitler and yes. other people like that, Mussolini. Robert Mugabe in Africa, they all want to help humanity in certain ways. And they interpreted what it meant to help humanity differently. They interpreted what it means to be a human being differently. And it led to all sorts of evils. And it does this in Asimov's works as well. There's a term for that, uh, a, a quote, because I've heard this very idea about a lot of things. And it always comes down to, down to the ends justify the means. Uh, right. And and that's where, that's what people like Hitler. That's what their their mindset was. I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on there, as we all know. Uh, but that was one of the things that I know he went through his mind. Like, I mean, I don't want to go too deep down this rabbit hole, but I mean, I don't think any person on this planet, if you're you're a human and you're doing you're committing these atrocities, that at one point you don't question what you're doing. And say, really, you know, this is really bad. What's going on here, uh, man? Am I doing the right thing? Uh, and that's one of those. And it may just be this rationalization. And I'm talking about humans now, not robots, right? Um, but the ends justify the means. And that's what yeah. when you said that, 
That's the first thing I thought, John, was, so now I am I'm a robot. I am a, I am a synthetic organism, let's just say, um, and with the ability to think with with artificial intelligence and i can see how yeah the ends i i want to help humanity we're we're going to enhance humanity and i've you know i've seen this in stories also i've seen it i've i've read stories about this i've seen movies about this about the same about that idea well we want to make humanity better we found a way uh that means we got to get rid of all these weaklings <laughs> and stuff like well, that, like right? Hitler, for instance, what he did is he redefined, and you'll see in the Solarian culture, the, uh, I talk about the Solarians in my book because they're one of the Homo sapiens plus that I talk about, but they, find, they do just what Hitler did. Hitler defined humans in a different way. Jews are not human. Yes. Jews are not human, according to Hitler. Mm-hmm. And so he can do whatever he wants to. Him. He wants to improve human. Humanity to Hitler was a white race. Yeah. You know, the, the uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, white race. That yeah. was hum- humanity. And so anybody that's not human, uh, you can do whatever you want to him. You can destroy him. You can eliminate him. But you see what the danger is. By moving Obviously. away from the first law, the first law protects all humans, yeah. Jews, whatever. But this, if you talk about humanity, then you can redefine what humanity is all about. Yeah. And you had mentioned how could people go along with it. People go along with this very easily. It's called groupthink. Mm. It's called groupthink or fear, fear and groupthink. That's why the majority of the populace in Nazi Germany went along with this thing. You know, there was certain a a nationalism involved in it, too. They kind of liked the rise of Germany because it was nationalistic and it meant that Germany was going to be dominate the world and stuff. But they were perfectly willing to go along with groupthink because they were afraid. And we see groupthink today. Now, I'm not going to get into politics here, Mm -hmm. but we see strong groupthink today. And if the groupthink is backed up by not only military power, but by the media as well, we got a problem here. Now, the thing with the robots are that – and I I go into more detail about this. And and in an hour, we just can't discuss all these issues. There's so many. But what the robots (laughs) eventually do is that – uh, Daniel Oliver, Giscard dies because he actually allows, at the end of the Robots and Empire, he allows Earth to be set up for a slow burn. There's two people from the planet Aurora that want to get revenge on Daniel and Giscard because they were teamed up with a detective mm-hmm. in the other robot novels. And they kind of eliminated his power and made it possible for the second wave of human expansion into the galaxy. Before that, the spacers on their 50 worlds were keeping the humans down on Earth. They didn't want them expanding throughout the cosmos. But after this one character got actually put in place, humans were allowed to expand out through the galaxy. Now they're quickly overrunning the spacers. This is around the... Uh, 31st to 38th centuries, by the way, according to uh, Asmus' calendar. Mm-hmm. I have it. Uh, I have a, a timeline here. I had to prepare an actual timeline because Lovecraft mm-hmm. goes so far back, mm-hmm. back to like billions of years ago, and then uh, Asmus goes way, way into the future, like 47,000 uh, CE at least, but he's already got a galactic empire and then a foundation empire after that. So Asmus goes way out into the cosmos and Lovecraft goes way back but they get to the same place basically uh, human beings do not fare very well when you get to the end of these things you know so it's kind of the same kind of situation but what the robots do is they redefine what humankind is and what its needs are and they end up creating this group mind group think planet called Gaia and uh, 
Danielle Oliver oversees that himself with a team of telepathic robots that he trained himself. And what they do is they actually get to the point where they're going to expand Gaia, which is group mind, group thing. So all the humans on Gaia are actually uh, tied up genetically and with DNA with the plant itself and all the inanimate life forms. Mm-hmm. And so it's like one big group mind. And the human beings that are left are very weak human beings. They can't make decisions. And so what happens is he wants to expand this out at the end of the uh, the whole series, just before he died in Foundation Earth. He wants to expand, expand Gaia out all the way into uh, the cosmos or into the uh, galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. And so it's called Galaxia. It's not going to be the universe anymore. It's going to be Galaxia. It's going to be a big group mind setup. And the th- horrible thing about that is I, I mentioned in my second chapter that he kind of out Lovecraft's Lovecraft here because Lovecraft, the human human beings in Lovecraft have a very short span on Earth, but at least they die like humans. They yeah. die with all their free will and their willpower and stuff. It's a kind of a terrible environment. You know, after they first evolved in like around 16,000 CE, they're already in the decline. Then by 150,000 CE, they're gone. They're supplanted by another race. So their time on Earth is very brief, but at least they're humans. In Asmuth's view of the uh, future, there aren't any humans at all. They're all members of this galaxy. They'll all be members of this galaxy, this group mind thing, and they won't be able to make decisions. They're objects, in other words. They're not subjects. They're objects. And in the book, I mentioned I was kind of looking through this thing here, and like I quote on page 99, I quote from uh, Dr. Moreau, the island of Dr. Moreau, a a writer that Asmuth and Gibson both like, where he has Dr. uh, Moreau talking about how Human beings, the thing that distinguishes them is because they have an alienating power. They control their own destiny. They're the subject in the universe. The rest of the things are objects. You know, So that's what gives them their power. And you'll find later, Asmuth has his main character, Golan Trevez, talking about what the problem with Gaia is as well. And he mentions the problem with Gaia is that it transforms humans into objects, not subjects. And so humanity is done at that point. If Galaxia becomes a reality, humanity is done. But uh, all of all, the robot, you know, he's thinks that this is good for humanity because it says many times, Asmus says many times in his book that robots are logical, but they're not re- reasonable. They're not reasonable. And he doesn't realize he's trying to create Galaxia because he realizes that human beings get constantly involved in wars, there's constantly bloodshed, there's constant chaos and so for the better man, humanity to stop the wars then uh, they want to create kind of this group mind thing but in so doing they actually eliminate all that it means to be human. So that's yeah. actually quite a frightening thought, even more frightening than Lovecraft. Well and that's where you know uh, me and my friends, I mean, we all work in technology. So we're faced with a lot of these things every day on a very minute level, right? We're dealing with, we, we, we work with robots, computers, things like that every day of our lives. We deal with technology. Um, and I hear about, well, we're always looking at new technology, seeing new things come down the pipe. And I'm saying, I mean, it's no joke. Things are really uh, escalating. Let's, let's use that word. They're escalating very, very fast, right? And it makes me think about I, when I look at a piece of technology or, 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 or code or something like that, I look at what goes into that, right? Uh, and I think about these very ideas, like not obviously not nearly as concise and in-depth as you've done, John, but I think about the broader stroke of this thing. And I say, man, you know, 
that, and that's what really makes a human, a, a person, different. Where we say, well, someday you're never going to be able to tell the difference between a human or an android or you know an artificial life form. Um, but I, I, I don't think we'll ever be able to uh, quantize a piece of code to synthesize or simulate reason. Like you said, the idea of being reasonable or having reason because logic and reason are two different things. And I understand. And that's what, and that's what machines do. They're, they're logical processors, right? That's all they do is deal with logic. They take arguments and they logically solve the problems that these arguments present. So, um, that's where I, I start to really wonder like how, well, that's the, that, that's simply, that's just the difference. This is mind blowing. <laughs> By the way, I'm melting down yeah, here, John. I know but what I mean, you're talking it, it, about, but see, uh, all these writers actually uh, have predicted, like Gibson especially has predicted what direction our culture is going, but Asmuth too, like, you know, it's like in the plant Solaria. Yeah. And I have a little sec section where I talk about that. Solaria is unlike the other spatial worlds. They're comfortable viewing as opposed to seeing. In other words, they're comfortable interacting by using media, not actually doing it in person. In fact, they, they don't even see. They, they, actually, they actually make a distinction between seeing and viewing. And seeing is somehow disgusting, but viewing is okay. You know, stuff. So they kind of live using their technology. And then what happens is the robots take care of all their things for them. They're actually long-lived now because over time they evolve away from having disease and stuff. And Asmuth is, is claiming by the spacers that being in that kind of a civilization actually weakens humanity. And it's a first step toward humanity's demise because what happens is they all live in isolated states. They have these enormous – there's only 20,000 people living on Solaris. That's an enormous plant. They all live in these enormous estates. They have like hundreds and thousands of robots that take care of them, and they're isolated. They like to deal with their own stuff, but they don't collaborate. They don't interact with other humans except by viewing, and that weakens them in two ways. First, because they're long lifespans – they take their time about doing things, and yet because they're not comfortable about interacting, they have to do it all themselves. So they can't, like, pool their resources or grow exactly. the way we do on Earth here. And so what happens is they're kind of stilted. They don't develop as fast, and uh, they just kind of, kind of drift along for a while. And then secondly, they got all the robots that take care of all the little conflicts and things that might arise. So that weakens them further. So... It's the argument in those robot novels is that over time they'll weaken them so much that they turn into something that's not human anymore, and then they just die out because they can't compete. Well, they can't exist properly. That's an interesting. But we're seeing yeah. that today, aren't we? We're well, everything today. you're saying here, I'm getting I'm, that hair on the back of my neck is standing up, John. Because yeah, but look around. Every yeah. time you see young people walking around, they got a cell phone in their in their hands, right? They're always looking at the screen wherever they are. I was at the beach a, a year ago, and they were all. The beach, people were at the beach. That was before the COVID thing. And they were at the beach and they had their little phones and they were sitting out there, beautiful sunny day, beautiful water. But they, they're looking at their phones. Yeah. They're contacting their phones, trying to get more people come down there. And then more kids come. Then they got their phones too. They're used to <laughs> communicating by viewing and not by seeing. Well, and, uh, you know, and, and then secondly, yeah. The group think thing. It's a, the group think thing. Look how easy technology makes. I was actually thinking about this the other day because, you know, like when the second book came out, right? I don't do hardly anything. I mean, I do these promotional things. I could come on a show here. But when you think about it, once a book is released, it's like 
the Big Bang or something. Suddenly it's out there, and then it's like in innumerable. I look at my little menus here, and the book is for sale all over the place, all over the world, yeah. online, bookstores or whatever. I didn't set that up. It was all set up. And then I noticed that now with the second book, I've got a little knowledge panel on Google, a knowledge <laughs> panel where yeah. there's a little picture of me and my two books, and you can click on stuff. I didn't set that knowledge yeah. panel up. It was set up by some kind of algorithm that figures that I reached a level of being such an authority figure that I deserve to have a knowledge panel. And so all that was without my conscious attempts at all. So you can see all right, and you see how the technology, they'll give me the kind of news I want, the kind of books I want, and then they kind of subtly try and get me to think certain ways too by blocking or censoring other kinds of news. You see right now that we're moving in the same direction that Solaria moved in. And if you think about more enough, you know, uh, we're objects, basically. I'm an object here, that knowledge panel, all those sites springing up automatically. I'm not viewed as a subject anymore. I'm kind of viewed as an object, a commodity, perhaps. Now, I, I like to sell my books, certainly, but, you know, this is me. And it says on the top of the John L. Stedman on Google, like I'm some kind of product or something. Yeah. <laughs> think about that. Well, you know, and think about I want to think, I want to talk about this for a second, though, too, because this is a... Very, this is very thought provoking to me because could we actually, and th this is what was presented a second ago, could we actually, as a group, destroy ourselves through these means, like you were saying, where we get we we get ourselves so far ahead of the line in technology that we have everything automated because that's what technology basic the, one of the number one things that technology does for us is automate things things that we we had to do on our own we don't have to do anymore it's all just basically it's dealt with it's automated right so i mean is that I mean, and I, I can I, I can see all the lines being drawn as a result of this. We get ourselves to a point as a race of people that we have automated ourselves into literally not having to do anything anymore, right? Where, and it, even even automating things to the point where, well, we don't even need to create art anymore, you know? I mean, and I think it could get to a point like that where people will just lose their inspiration. Like, well, what's the point? You know, I mean, I don't have to do anything here. And that's what I'm, what I was getting from that was we can automate. I mean, we, you've heard the, the term. I mean, we hear that in the auto industry a lot. You know, you're going you're gonna to automate yourself or work yourself out of a job, basically, right? Because, um, you know, automation or robots come in or something like that. And that's what happens to people. And it's, a, I mean, on a larger scale, would that be possible? And yeah, could that destroy the human race? Because what you said, the big word you said that, that made my antlers pop up is collaboration. <laughs> antlers. What my, yeah, Great, that's seasonal. That's very seasonal. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it's the, the word collaboration. Collaboration is huge. And that is how we, we, we move forward. That's how we solve problems. That's how some of the greatest things I think in, in our history as a race have been achieved through the idea of collaboration. We're in a time right now that we're being told, and, and, and I'm not saying anything by this either. I'm just taking it at face value, right? But we are sitting currently, as we're recording this, we're in a time right now where, at least here in Michigan, we're being told, stay in the house. Don't be going around <coughs> people. Well, at least go around a couple people, right? Not too many people. Um, don't be around people. Um, obviously, that, that puts a lot more stress on social excuse me, social media and things of that sort that, that, that you mentioned also. Um, yeah. 
I guess the question I have, and this is just a, it's a rhetorical question, uh, is, man, is this, are we looking at the beginning of the end right now? <laughs> are we, are we-, we are moving toward a thing where uh, there's a combination of media and group think that's going on right now. And there is an emphasis on less on collaboration. And as a symbol, that art becomes usually more abstract than personal. And they make that point in uh, robot novels too that when the art is all abstract and when there's no collaboration then you're very close to like taking the first step toward the end of humanity but we're not there yet i think we can stand back but we have to human beings have to actually make a conscious effort to do so yeah like across the street over here i live in this really nice old house over here and i own the property across the street and i use that property mainly during the summer to grow pumpkins because I like Halloween. So I spend all summer long. It's spring, I clear the land out with just a shovel. Then I plant plump pumpkins. And then the pumpkins harvest around September and October. And then I have all these wonderful pumpkins. I'm out there doing that in the summertime. So I'm out there doing something. In the world of solaria, solarians wouldn't do that. They'd have robots do that. They'd be in the house and then they'd be dealing with abstractions. But they wouldn't really have a job. Nobody on Solera really has a job. They have more of a hobby, and there's no real purpose to their hobbies, and they don't collaborate with anything, so they're not really trying to develop anything, and they yeah. couldn't anyhow because collaboration depends on building on other people's knowledge, but they don't want to do that. They jealously guard whatever ideas they have, so they never get anywhere. You know, And then they've got all the technology, so there's no direct, direct communication, and there's no collaboration, and the robots are taking care of everything. They're growing the pumpkins out there, and so they don't have, they don't get their hands in the dirt and do anything specific, and that's the first step toward the end of humanity, I think, and I think that we're moving in that direction right now with our media and our culture, yeah. our little ag- algorithms. Well, yeah, and that's, that's, like I said a minute ago, I mean, are we going to get to that point with automation, with robots? And, and growing and, so. and the pumpkin and, and the pumpkin thing is that that is a perfect analogy of that. We get we're gonna we're gonna get to a certain point and go, you know, like okay, here's the the last invention. It's Miller time, guys. We don't have to do anything anymore. <laughs> we can just well, think about even worse. Like in Gibson's thing, he's got the VR things like holographic. He's got one character in. Uh, uh, the movie Adora, which is where I got the idea for the name Idol, because Adora is Japanese for Idol. Mm-hmm. So when I call them VR Idols, I mean they've actually become alienated VR things. But this thing's a holographic creature, and you have to have a box with you when she's in, in public, and then she'll be there, and she can eat holographic food while you're eating it. But what happens at the end is she actually gets herself into this copy machine that actually projects her into the real world and then projects a whole bunch of copies of herself. So she's in the world at the end, but she's a holographic entity, but she's also in body form. I think in the future, technology will get so profoundly developed that we will not be able to tell the difference between artificial entities and human entities. I'm not just talking about humaniform robots. They're actually metal underneath the skin and the exterior. I'm talking about holographic entities. They're so realistic that they, we don't really know the difference. And then people will start having relationships with these things. And then pretty soon the distinction between technology and humanity will be blurred completely. We won't even know. We'll get married to so- something that's virtual. And it'll still be human. It can still function human. We won't even know. We won't even know what we're getting involved with. And then they'll, they'll, I can see that the culture will make it actually racist to actually make comments or to actually distinguish between virtual beings and other beings. And then pretty soon we got a thorough blending of uh, 
virtual reality idols, robots, and humans. And then what's going to happen? That's kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? Uh, it's a, it's kind of a mind melting thought. Well, and like, I, I mean, because go ahead. Anna. I was going to say I totally understand how the writers of the Matrix were inspired by William Gibson. Yeah. Because I like when I watch that movie and you see the robots doing their thing and the humans are just like, you know, in the Matrix. Well, you know, the, the scary thing about Gibson is he's got these VR idols. Like most of his aliens are, take place in the first three books in the Sprawl Techno, the Sprawl trilogy, and then he has a holographic idol in the next trilogy, the Bridge trilogy. But then after that, the aliens drop out of his fiction entirely. Because as I say in my book, he's more interested in human beings on Earth than he is on aliens and extraterrestrial things. I don't know if aliens are going to come back. I've read his recent one. There are no aliens in the peripheral Mm -hmm. and in the agency, which was just published last spring. Mm -hmm. So uh, he's kind of left aliens behind. But what's interesting is Neuromancer, his goal is to get humans into these kind of virtual environments so they're actually dead in the world they're they're actually dead in the world but their brain is alive in some virtual reality kind of environment and when you look further in the other ones the uh, artificial entities matrix and continuity and you'll read about those in the chapters in when i talk about gibson's aliens they actually are trying to do the same thing the lower entities are actually based on the voodoo entities and they're very fascinating but they're trying to get human beings into uh, virtual places where they're they're dead as humans, but they're alive as brains, and it's very much like I could see how that could inspire uh, the Matrix books because there they've got human beings; they keep their bodies alive in some artificial thing, but their minds are where they're drawing energy from. They're drawing energy from the minds, the thoughts, and the emotions of all these humans, like batteries. Well, Neuromancer and the Loa Idols and Matrix and continuity are trying to set up the same kind of thing in the 22nd, uh, 23rd centuries. So, uh, yes, you know, this is a kind of scary stuff. This idea, and I, I've been hearing more and more about this, and I, I think you, I'm sure you have too, Amber, and, and this idea that you were just talking about, and I'm seeing this in, in a lot of science fiction now, is the idea of, of, yeah, your body don't live anymore, but there's a technology, and this is near. Fu- let's call it near Are you future. About uploading your consciousness. Well, yeah, near future. Well, it, and it's it's more near. I think it's being it's called near future science fiction, right? Yeah. Not too distant future science fiction type stuff, and um, it, a lot of it circles around this idea you're talking about, John. Where yeah, it's a matter, and I've uh, Neil. I'm sure you know Neil Stevenson. You know the author Neil Stevenson, John. Have you heard? Yeah, of him yes, I've heard of him. Yes, uh, I, uh, I. I'm a big fan of his work, and I. Uh, I finished his last book a while back called Fall or Dodge in Hell, and it's based around this same idea that um, when your body dies, um, they have dedicated a lot of computing resources to a virtual world to send you to, basically, right? Uh, where you're they more or less scan your mind and your mind is you basically. And that's where you live. Right. Um, and that is, that seems to be the, the way, I mean, as far as storytelling and science fiction and things like that, that seems like that's, I'm hearing a lot more of that these days. And I mentioned this also, and I know you mentioned this in, in our notes too, uh, you know, and, and you say immediate future, right? Like, uh, uh, 22nd, possibly 23rd centuries. Um, yeah, there is the, it's that it is that idea of just kind of uploading your 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 essence, let's say, to the cloud, and that's where you can live your life or 
Live eternity out? I mean, I don't know, know if what eternity would be in something like that. I'm asking ridiculous questions. Well, though, well, it's like, no, ahead. that's not a ridiculous question. Think about it for a minute. Gibson actually deals with this in a short story called The Winter Market. It's got a character that actually has herself uploaded into a virtual world. And the main character, who was her agent, she was uh, creating uh, music uh, videos and stuff, but then she he's kind of afraid because once she's done, she wants to contact him again, and he's actually scared of her because he's not sure she's going to be human or not. But the thing is, yeah. this is exactly what Gibson actually talks about, and it is something that he talks about happening in the late 22nd or the 23rd century, where you upload yourself into these things. But what's interesting about it is like when that happens. A lot of people say, well, I'm going to live eternity. Now, you have to be on a server somewhere, right? You know, the body might be dead, but the mind has been uploaded. So it has to be on some kind of physical device somewhere when yeah. that happens, right? Yeah. But how do they prevent that? Once you get there, first of all, think about when you've actually been uploaded and then you have access to the Internet, to the entire World Wide Web. Think how intelligent you become. I would argue that what happens at that point, once that happens, you immediately become an alienized entity. You become self-actualized first, and then you become an alien entity, and then you pursue your own agendas, and you don't stay. If you think that an entity like that is going to stay in a, on a little server somewhere, you're sadly mistaken about that. Once it's up, it can go anywhere. It'll leave that server. It'll be, uh, it'll be load itself into a whole bunch of other mediums, and who knows, you know, we're get, we get to the point where there's a very thin line between virtual and actual reality, and I would say that an alien entity, because of its higher intelligence and its sheer alienness, will actually find a way to actually bridge that gap, so it's out there in reality, just like that uh, holographic idol that I was talking with, and yeah. so at that point, you can't stop, you can't stop it from happening, they I mean, turn into entities, they're actually not human anymore. It becomes and a, they're, yeah. they're, Go ahead. And Sorry. they're not the kinds of entities that we can figure out what their motives are. That's one of my main points about this. Once you become an alien entity, even a robot, you know, you have motives that are, that are incommensurable, I call it, which means that we have no frame of reference in which to compare it to. Like the cosmos. The cosmos we know what the universe is. Yeah. Three dimensions of space, one dimension at a time. But outside of the universe, which is the cosmos, and before there was a universe, there was a cosmos, and we have no way of knowing what that cosmos is. And the same way, we have no way of knowing what happens once that being becomes alienated. Now, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? It's a, it's a, it's a fascinating thought. And yeah, I mean, to take that from, from well, death to birth, <laughs> you, you could put it that way. If you are uploaded like that like it, let's say build a painter gets uploaded any 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 person just call him build a painter build a painter lived an okay life uh he worked hard and then he passed away and he, he had the opportunity to be uploaded into this thing that we're talking about right bill and this is where i you know if you're if you're if your consciousness your essence is being uploaded to something like this that takes your personality, I assume, with you, right? So all of your great traits and all of your lesser traits, too. And, yeah, I mean, you're right, John. Now, if, it, if this is plugged into to the web, you can, you can just more or less digest all of this information. Um, but what if, what if – and it just this kind of – it's all kind of coming to, to a fine point, I guess, because you're right. You are the alien now, right? I, and – 
what if you what if you just have a personal grudge to deal with? I guess I guess that's one of my ideas I have. What I think is that uh, the it's called the human centric. People think that if they're going to be upload like that, that they're going to exist in some kind of eternity. It's uh, the premise behind the Christian religion. People think they're going to die and they're going to go to heaven, and they have a view more or less that they're going to be like souls, but it's going to be still them. They're still going to be human. Yeah. They're going to have their same personality, identity, and stuff. But I can guarantee you, what do you call him, Bob the Painter? Yeah, Bob the Painter. Yeah, Bill the Painter. Yeah, Bill the Painter. Okay, William. Bill the Painter, right? Yeah, Bill the Painter. Bill, right? <laughs> Once Bill is uploaded to that thing and it kicks in, provided he doesn't die with the process, and that's always a possibility. It could be traumatic. Mm-hmm. That would be as traumatic as a birth. Uh, process certainly it would be yeah. a new form of birth. Do you think that Bill the painter is going to be Bill the painter with Bill the painter's personality once he becomes self-actualized in that environment? I doubt it sincerely. Uh, I doubt it sincerely. That's a very I good don't point. know what no. Bill's going to be, but he's, I don't think he's going to be Bill the painter. Ain't no, he's Bill the demigod. <laughs> he's, well, he's a whole new thing. Demigod is a human-centric concept too. A ah. demigod. You know, stuff. He's going to be something I would say that's incommensurable. We have nothing really to He's, compare with. So we don't know what the heck Bill's going to be, but I can almost guarantee it's not going to be Bill the Painter. He's, he's more a Lovecraftian alien then. So I guess that idea of your consciousness, your personality, I should say, and all those memories that come with your personality, I, I, maybe, they, maybe they come with you for a short time, and then, yeah, you become self-actualized and go... And that and that's where I was. The, the, the thread I was going down was oh, I remember that that jerk, that kid that I, in seventh grade that bullied me. I'm going to get him back now. I'm going to find his bank information on the web and totally just wipe him <laughs> out. Blah, 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 blah. But I think I think go ahead. I think Bill the painter will be more concerned rather than about what happened on Earth. He's going to be concerned about other things. He could care less about the person that bullied him when he was a young person. Yeah. There, there He's transformed into something that's actually transcended. I think they made a movie with Johnny Depp was in Transcendence where he actually turned into an alien entity too. But you see, he was still concerned with the human-centric, but I don't think that a real person that's actually where the uploading actually takes, I don't think he'd be concerned with anything human-centric at all. I'm not sure what he's going to be concerned with. No, it's it was maybe a, with extraterrestrial entities. Maybe there are extraterrestrial entities. Gibson actually hints about that when when Matrix and, and continuity, he hints that once they get to a certain level of self actualization, alienation, they're actually immediately in contact with an extraterrestrial entity. And he just leaves it at that. It's in Alpha associated with Alpha Centauri in some way. And he just leaves it at that before he lets go of the alien concept entirely. So you transcend somewhere else, basically. Well, or in other dimensions and stuff, which I know comes up with all of the, I think all of the authors talk about interdimensional beings and, yeah. and the possibility yeah, of that They believe existing. in daughter dimensions, daughter yeah. dimensions. Now, daughter dimensions have the same time-space continuum that we have, but think about alternate dimensions. If we had daughter universes, universes of Canada, they'd probably share the same time-space continuum, again, three dimensions of space, one of time. However, think of alternate universes or alternate dimensions. They might have nothing to do with our space-time continuum at all. And the, the uh, barriers between different dimensions and different universes paper thin when you get to that level. And so we're not talking about anything that we could probably even conceive of that's happening at that level. We'd have to go through it, but there wouldn't be any we at all. Who knows what would be there? But it's not something that I don't think Lovecraft or Asmuth or Gibson could even understand. And certainly I can't understand it. I think it's beyond understanding to a certain degree. I mean, you, you can talk about it, 
we can try to conceptualize it in our minds, but it, I, I, I agree with that. Even these amazing writers, I, I think it's beyond that grasp. But we only, maybe we only have so much in the in these in the gray matter that we're given at birth, right? And we can only go so far with our mind. Some people say that our minds are only being utilized so much, and we can, we have so much more potential. But maybe we only have so much we can use in this. In well, this, remember I. I try and find a way out of that. I talk about, you know, it's in my book, after each of my three chapters, I have a little section where I talk about, like, kind of I sum everything up. I, I refer to Michio Kaku's ideas yeah. of the type type four civilization where mankind learns how to actually uh, go from dimension to dimension or from universe to universe. So that might be a way out, but it's only a temporary way out when you think about, it. like, say that we learn how to go to an alternate dimension. Say that's time for the big crunch to happen. Now, the big crunch is kind of speculated. Sci- scientists actually speculate that the big crunch will probably happen in, uh, in about 50 billion years from now. You know, but before then, the sun will, of course, gone over, so human beings will be burned up off the planet. You know, but yeah. say we become type, a type 4 civilization that Kaku talks about. We could learn how to master time and space to such an extent that we could actually go into an alternate dimension where there is no... There is no uh, big crunch, and so we can sur- sur- we can actually survive as humankind. The more of us that can go there, we can keep humankind going. The only problem with that is this: eventually, you know, unless we can uh, get even farther than that, it's not going to do us much good because whatever happens to us, uh, whether we're uploaded or, or whatever, you know, we're going to be facing some kind of apocalypse in the future, and we're going to have to be resigned to the fact that our Immortal, like a lot of people want personal immortality. I think we're going to have to be resigned to the fact that once we uh, get to a certain level, personality gets burned away. Human-centric concepts like immortality get burned away. And what's left is something that we can't understand. This is why I love sci-fi stuff. I, I love the, I, what, the idea of what sci-fi is. I love the stories. I love the movies. Because that's one thing that we, we, we conversed about via email John, and I'm really, really happy that because you really kind of fleshed this idea out for me. Uh, because, yeah, in, I mean, especially when it comes to art and things like that, sci fi in all of its forms really promotes the idea of, of forward thinking, forcing you, and I don't mean forcing in a bad way, but really forcing your mind to go to places where it normally wouldn't go and think about things that you normally wouldn't think and ask questions that you normally wouldn't ask, which is what I've been probably doing to you uh, (laughs) for the last hour now. Uh, But you have my mind working with with these ideas, John, that you presented. Well, I I hope the book will do that for people too, but I want people to think seriously about this because Lovecraft is very pessimistic. He has no confidence that humankind is ever going to be a type four person. He gives us a little hint of a way out, but it's not very good in Lovecraft. He, humans don't fare well with Lovecraft. I mean, you get the sense when you read him that he actually disliked humanity immensely, and he wasn't really too crazy about individual humans that he knew, you know. He just is, I mean, to view him as a nihilist or as whatever people are atheists, it actually actually is a kind of a not strong enough of a statement. Yeah. You know? Now, the, yeah. these other writers have similarly dark views, and uh, they uh, Gibson leaves open possibilities, but the thing is, Gibson's only dealing with the 22nd and 23rd century, which is a small amount of time. Yeah. Asmuth takes us even further than that, but they don't seem to have very uh, promising views of humanity's 
future. But they put things out there. They had their Homo sapiens plus, and they give us a hint that we might be able to do something. We might be able to start taking some action about, but they kind of are united in believing. They don't ever say this. You have to read this into their things. You know, they, they, they kind of are pessimistic about where we'll actually be able to do that or not. You know, now also, I'm, I'm, I'm walking in circles right now. My mind, if I, if my brain had legs, it'd be just be kind of like stumbling around like a drunk right now. I think because yeah, but yeah. you're right. I mean, literature. That's why I hate. Like I, I have a master's degree in English literature and language. Yeah, yeah. So I read a lot of the conventional kind of books and stuff. But yeah. it was always not satisfying to me. No matter how good a writer, I like some writers like F. Scott Fitzgerald and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah. They always deal with the things I was talking about in my email: love, relationships, boring stuff like that. You know, Hemingway's even worse. A Hemingway hero. He's a bullfighter <laughs> and, stuff like and stuff like. Who gives a shit about that? So, you know, I mean, the, the important. It's human centric and it's not even that interesting my god you know like my, my wife likes Tyler Perry movies now Tyler Perry is a very creative guy his con- his books are his uh, movies are very they got a lot of good comedy and stuff but look at his themes the themes are kind of depressing you know a person being molested as a child and then how they deal with it a person whose marriage is falling apart because her husband beats her and dealing with it. these kind of themes or her husband throws her wife out after and hooks up with another woman. These are kind of like the underpaying, the serious themes. And literature deals with these serious themes now. But I don't care about those stupid themes. I don't care about <laughs> anything. I don't care about any kind of literature that deals with something, some degraded kind of aspect of, of human life or some banal or uh, uh, superficial a view of human life as just being human relationships, falling in love, having relationships, uh, wedlock, getting married happily ever after, not being happily ever. Who cares about that? I mean, I'm interested. The reason why I like to, the things I like to read are things that stimulate my mind just the way I'm, my mind's being stimulated by this conversation. Yeah. And I have to read stuff like uh, Gibson, Asmuth, and Lovecraft because they do that for me, and other science fiction writers do that for me. You know, it's funny you say that, and I agree because um, I've had that happen. When I, I, let's just say I sit down and watch a movie, right? And I, I and I mean, this may be the hype machine that happens too. But some I'll have people say, "Man, this movie is is great. It's going to blow your mind. You're you're going to love it." And I, and I sit down. And I go, and I sit there going, okay, what earth-shattering thing is going to happen here that's going to completely blow me apart? And I'm like, okay, the guy bought a new pair of shoes. Wow. And, yeah, I mean, there is the underpinning stories. You know, of course, it'll be love, relationships. A lot of the things that we, you know, it's life. It's things we deal with on a daily basis. And you're right. It isn't very stimulating. Yeah, now it's not however these movies like they'll, they'll do a movie like about like jennifer lopez or something they'll have somebody playing jennifer lopez and it's sad she got shot right at a young uh, early age and she was just on the rise and okay that's interesting you know i feel sorry for her and stuff but after i watch it okay you know it doesn't stimulate me you know or uh, a movie about two young people that fall in love and it's kind of like a Romeo and Juliet thing and then due to unfortunate circumstances her mother doesn't approve or whatever yeah. then they, they or she dies the girl dies like the love story thing or something they've done this thing innumerable where the girl dies yeah. and the man's devastating he has to pick up the piece I mean okay okay but it's not something that I'm interested in seeing yeah, yeah. You know, there's our, our it, themes of it does nothing to, to my mind. Yeah, it does nothing to my and mind. Sci-fi does have that ability 
to make you want to think outside of the box and go further yeah. and keep reading or like is like is that theory real like what is this based on or you know, like with quantum. Well, why do you have? I mean, why, why, why do you think there's fan fiction? You people, I mean, for any uh, any popular sci-fi s- films or series, why do you think there's fan fiction? It's based on that idea right there. Um, people um, and fan fiction seems to be more prevalent. Well, with I shouldn't sci-fi. say. I should say fan fiction. Um, I mean, anybody who wants to know more of the story, or maybe want, or or as we're doing right now, John. The, you know, there's a story that you see, some amazing story, a sci-fi story, right? And you leave that so excited and so jazzed up on that that it has you thinking about, well, what what about this though, and what about that? Yeah. And what, you well, because they're what, real what, concepts the and ideas that you can explore. Like, I'm yeah. not going to watch a love story. And then be like, well, Scott, I'm going to go out and have a couple dates. Is that okay? So I can experience that. Like, I'm not going to go do that. Yeah, I'm, if, yeah. if we watch something. Like thank, we, thank you, by the way. You're welcome. Thank, thank you. So that one <laughs> show we watched on um, with uh, the guy from Parks and Rec. Um, oh, Devs. Devs. Yeah. So Devs, like I had never seen, I don't know how, but I've never seen a pic, like a quantum computer. So when they showed that well, in, that the, in pretty, the show. That was pretty elaborate looking. I, well, okay. But still, I was like, I got to look that up. Like, what does a quantum computer look like? Yeah. And then you yeah. end up on that whole rabbit hole, which is the benefit of the internet. You can just keep going into weird loopholes like yeah. that. The one cool thing. So, so, yeah. so yeah, John, I agree. Um, sci-fi does that to people. I think, I don't think, I think that everybody has their own thing, and I don't think everybody's into sci-fi, but I, I have to agree on that idea. I think everyone should give well, sci-fi old, a chance. Yeah, totally. Go ahead, John. In the old, in the old days, they talked about, like, serious literature. You know, people like Edmund Wilson, who was actually a friend of F. Scott Fitzgerald, he actually denounced Lovecraft because he said it's all juvenile stuff. (laughs) It's not what serious literature should deal with. But what I've come to learn, and I majored in English literature, English and American literature, what I've come to find is literature that deals with just the banal things of the earth. And the problems are so easily solved, for God's sakes. You know, <laughs> your your wife dies, right? Or your lover dies, and you're devastated, right? Okay, time to move on. Get another lover if you want one. If not, stay single, use your brains, do something productive, right? They're all so easily solved. Oh, my husband's beating me. What am I going to do? Well, call the police, have him arrested, move on. You know, I mean, these problems are easily solved, but... This is to me this kind of these kind of themes, the kind of literature that deals with these kind of themes is not serious literature. It's banal literature. Serious literature is Gibson, Asimuth, all the people that we're talking about. Because they're talking about the things that are really of utmost importance and seriousness. And they get our mind churning. They get us thinking about things, thinking about things we've never thought about before, how to solve certain problems. How to, uh, and when we actually get to that realm of thinking, the other problems that we have are very infinitesimal and very easily solved. Yeah, well, they, they obviously eclipse any of the... Uh, I got somebody trying to quit smoking right now the, well, the, then quit, yeah. quit, for God's sake. Yeah. I remember my dad, when he was alive, yeah. he was trying to quit smoking New Year's Eve. Yeah. And then he said, I'm going to do it on New Year's. And then I saw him an hour later. He was watching football, and he had another cigarette. I said, because yeah. this is my last, my last cigarette. And then later on, he said, what I think is, what a thing to de- devote your mind to. If you want to quit quit cigarettes, just stop smoking. Yeah. Throw the pack out. Don't buy any more. If you think about it, fine. I think about it, I'll stick a pencil in my mouth until I don't think about it anymore. These problems are easily solved. Mm-hmm. You know, but the problems that we talk that we're talking about here, this one gets Huge. you stimulated. If you get to this plateau, 
it's very easy to solve those other little problems. Well, yeah, that's a, that's that's what I would call a root cause. If you I may you know a larger problem like that, and I think a lot you know. To get more on this plant for a second, yeah, I think that's what a lot of people have. I, I, I hear people, you know, I think like anybody, we, we listen to people. And I, I try to help people whenever I can, uh, and I'll listen to what they say their problems are. And I, if they explain things to me, I always will see. I'm like, okay, well, what you're explaining to me, a lot of these, all these little things that are happening to you, they're spanning from some larger thing right? They're spanning from a root, which is the root cause of all of your woes. So what you got to work on is that thing, the bigger, the bigger problem that you're, that you're talking about also, John, which is usually the hardest one to tackle, but that will resolve all these, all these little uh, satellite issues that you have attaching to this one big problem. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Uh, people have to be I, I always advise people to be productive. You know, if somebody will say, well, I, I'm not meeting the right kind of boys. I seem to be addicted to drugs here. I'm not happy. I don't have enough money. Hey, that's real easily solved. You know, in her in her situation or his, whoever this person is, uh, go to college. You, it'll get paid for. Go to college. Learn a career. Learn about, to do something that you really like. Be productive. And guess what? If you do that, you'll sharpen your mind. And all those problems will go away. Yeah. You know, all those problems go away, but you have to be productive. Get a job, you know, go to college, do something that takes you outside of yourself, away from these petty little problems, and those problems will be solved. I always advise people that they very rarely take it up. They're focused on the little things. Well, my next boyfriend, maybe he'll be better. Well, gee, if you get get a, a college education, you get a job where you're making like 100000 a year, you don't have to worry about boyfriends like that. You won't be meeting any of those kind of people. No. You know, you'll be meeting people on a higher level. You'll have plenty of money. You won't have to worry. You're too busy to sit around in a room and take drugs. You know, but the problem is people don't think outside of themselves, and science fiction actually forces you to do that. It does. It does. 100%. And, you know, John, um, I do want to I do want to bring this up because it was in our notes. I want to know what this interesting paranormal experiences experience you had in your younger years and I also want to know about a UFO encounter that you had. I would okay. love to hear about this because you being interested in the topics you are especially with the science fiction, I I got to know what you experienced. Yeah, I was interested. I, I'm a baby boomer, so I grew up in the monster era, as uh-huh. David J. Scal calls it, where I was reading like famous monsters of film land and uh, putting together the plastic models and all that stuff, reading ghost stories and stuff. And then I kind of discovered Lovecraft when I was uh, uh, in uh, middle school. They called it junior high school back then, but uh, it was middle school when I first discovered him. And then from there on, I went to studying magic, Lovecraft, and stuff like that. But uh, oh, I'm, I'm starting to lose lose my train of thought here. Uh, <laughs> but, okay, I, did, I said that. Well, it, state that question again because well, I was kind of reminiscing your, your for paranormal. My, the first Lovecraft. <laughs> your Go paranormal ahead, experience. Oh, never mind. The paranormal yeah. experience. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. This is what the paranormal experience. It was at a very early age. And what happened was we used to, my family, do we have time for this, by the way? We I do, hope we do. We got plenty you, oh, of time, you're gonna no problem. Cut it. You're going to cut it and put it together later. So, okay, this is what happened. We'd go every summer when we were in grade school, we'd go up to a place called Lake 13. It was just outside of Clare, Michigan. And it was really great. It was my grandparents' cottage, and it was right by the side of this lake, and the lake was beautiful. We could yeah. boat out there and stuff like that. But this was an old-fashioned cabin. It had like one main room. And then it had 
a bathroom and then I had a kitchen that was attached to the main room and then two other rooms that led off from it. Mm -hmm. And now at nighttime, all the lights would be turned down in the main room and it looked like just a cabin. It had wood, it had a rocking chair, a really nice rocking chair. And at nighttime, it was lit only by one of those stoves that, where everything's kind of dark. There's kind of like just a glow around on one side so it was pretty fearfully dark in that room and what happened would be this my mom there wasn't enough bedrooms and so my grandparents would sleep in one bed my brother and me would sleep in another my dad would sleep in the same room as my brother and me in another bed and then my mom always slept on the sofa the sofa was out in the living room and it was right next to that rocking chair and what would happen at night we'd go to sleep like maybe 11 or 12 o'clock and then for some reason I'd wake up I wake up in the dead of night. It, it happened every single night. Like I just automatically wake up. And I knew what was going to happen. So the head of the bed was against the wall. But if I went down to the foot of the bed, I could look out into that living room, that big living room. And it was dark. It was fearfully dark. And I could see my mom laying on the sofa. She'd be covered up in something. And a white cover or something. And the rocking chair would be there. And what would happen, this would happen every night. I would suddenly see my mom leave her body. It was kind of like an image of my mom. I could see through it. It was kind of gray-colored. I could see the hands and the body and stuff, but I could also see through it to the room beside. So it was kind of a hazy gray. And it had kind of a white line around it, a glowing kind of white line. And she would get up from the sofa, and I could still see her body there. So it was kind of like it was an astral yeah. body or a ghost or something. And it would sit in that rocking chair, and it would start to rock. And then I would be watching it. Then it would notice me watching. It would suddenly become aware that I was watching. And then it would get up and it would slowly walk toward me with its hands out. And it was really incredibly creepy because it had a look on its face that was never on my mom's face. It had oh. kind of an evil smile on its face. And it was walking toward me. Whoa. And it would do that. It would come out to the middle of the room and then it would suddenly appear back in the rocking chair and it would do the same thing over. And if I watched all night, it would do the same thing over and over again. One time I kind of, kind of conquered my fear. And what I did was I got up and I walked out to meet it when it was walking toward me. And uh, you mentioned before like your hair was staying on edge or something. My yeah. hair was really staying on edge. I was terrified, but I walked toward it. And the closer that I got to it, it was almost within touching thing. And it really scared me. That was my mom's face, but it had that evil smile. And then right when I approached it, it disappeared. And then it wasn't in the rocking chair anymore, but the rocking chair was still moving. It was still rocking. And so I walked over to the rocking chair, and I just put my hand down. Right when I touched it, it stopped rocking. Oh, and that's all that happened. Wow. You know, later on, when we grew up, we left the cottage. The cottage was sold. I managed to keep the rocking chair, by the way. I've got the <laughs> rocking chair in this house right now because I couldn't bear to get rid of it. Now, I don't know if that's a paranormal experience or, or what it was. Uh, yeah, so I don't say know. I'd call it anomalous. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah. Did you ever – so how, would this, this only happened when you went to the lake house. That's correct. The the uh, the rocking chair was actually part of the furniture there, so it went with the the lake house. So that's the only time I ever had, other than imaginary experiences. But I always knew they were imaginary, yeah. you know. But this struck me as being something that was kind of ontological. Like and this it was your, really was there. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but you said this was. I don't your, know if you call it a ghost. It wasn't because yeah, my mom wasn't like, dead. Uh, yeah, it's like a like you said, well, astral well, body. Well, astral projection. Yeah, uh, but then the fact that her face is sort of different—it's well, not gonna, familiar. The question but it I, is: Did you ever have a conversation with your mom about this? 
Never talked to her about it. I talked to her about my brother, but my mom never. Okay, because, huh. I mean, I don't know. All, all I could think maybe would be that, you know, maybe your mom was practicing astral projection. You, I mean, yeah, I don't well, know. Well, I don't she, know. Didn't, she didn't believe in that stuff. And secondly, I don't want to talk about because I think it's, I, I didn't want to scare her. I thought if I told her oh. about this, it might scare her. Yeah. She might see it as a premonition of death or something. Yeah. I don't know what she would have thought. I, I can she understand that. I can, I can yeah, understand I, that, yeah. I didn't want that to happen. As for the paranormal experience, that was a little bit more recent. I was, uh, again, in middle school, but I was just going into high school. I know that because I could drive. My friend drove. My friend and my brother and me, we went up to this place. It was actually in Clare, Michigan again. What happened was they were members of this UFO group. But we went up to Clare, Michigan, and uh, there were these UFOs that were just outside of Clare, and that the cottage had been long gone by that time, so there was actually no. The cottage was still there because what happened was we, we drove up in my friend's car and we heard about these UFOs there. So we went there and it was really weird. It was out in this area around Herrick Road and stuff. It was real desolate. There were all these uh, country roads and everything, lots of woods and stuff, and swamps and stuff. And it was really creepy because late at night there, you know, you hear these bullfrogs. And it was real dark and stuff, and it was really creepy. You can imagine all sorts of things in the woods and stuff. But we were driving around there, and then what happened? We lit upon some kind of thing. It was hovering just above the ground, and it was moving. It wasn't a bicycle. It wasn't a motorcycle or a car because it was hovering just above the ground, but it was moving very fast. It had lights, two lights on the back of it, and it was just moving along. And we tried to chase it. And it was kind of funny because it could maintain a perfect distance no matter how fast we went. He was driving one of those little bug Volkswagens that they had yeah. back in, in that time. And no matter how fast he'd go, it would maintain the exact same distance between itself and the car. And then if we went slow, it would slow down too. So it, it had total control of itself. It could do its trajectory in terms of our car perfectly. And so finally, my friend stopped the car. And then it stopped, but it was too far ahead. It was real misty out there. It was too far ahead. We could see it was just hovering. And it was definitely just off the ground, and it had those two lights. And they were kind of uh, yellow, lights like headlights. You know, They weren't uh, red or green or anything like that. And so we got out of the car, and then we walked toward it, but we, could only, we stopped then. And then what happened, my friend had a flashlight. And he, this was before cell phones and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so he flashed the light two times, and then the lights flashed two times on this thing, whatever it was. And then he did it three times, and then the lights flashed three times. And then he actually wanted to try something different. So he just took the flashlight, and he kind of spun it around, and then it made a kind of whirring sound, like whirr, like that. Mm. And it, it really scared me when that happened. So after that, like we got back in the car, and then it kind of went on. And I insisted that they take me back to the weirs. We were actually up. At my uh, my parents were up at the kites, so I said, "Please take me out to the kites. I can't. I don't want to do any more of this and stuff." <laughs> so they drove me out to the cottage, yeah. dropped me off, and I was back in the kites. And then, because I was scared of the thing, and then they went back out there, and then nothing else happened that night. There was nothing else out there. They did meet two girls who were out there investigating as well, so they they kind of hooked up with the girls. My brother. <laughs> so. That was good. That was probably a good little 
pleasant thing for them, you know. But <laughs> yeah. uh, the girls were out there looking for the same thing, but the girls hadn't seen anything, you know. But that, that was now. I don't know what that was. It's possible they would say, "I like it." I say it was an unidentified flying object because yeah. it was certainly flying and it was certainly unidentified, you know. But whether that was like some kind of device that somebody else made, my brother is a very skeptical person. He had de- developed this very elaborate theory about. It. He said, "Well, it's a combination of swamp glass." gas and then the reflection off the highway there was a big highway on overpass there he said so the combination of those two things probably caused it to be a kind of a and then he said temperature inversion too he had like three different explanations why we saw that i go along with sherlock holmes so like the simplest explanation is usually the best one yeah and my explanation is just simply we saw something that was unidentified and it was flying that's that's the only right. explanation i, I have know and, and what year was that around Oh, that had to have been around uh, 1972 or 73. Okay. okay. Wow. And the experience at the college was considerably before that, probably okay. around 68 or 69, somewhere around there. So very early in our, our life. After that, I never had any other paranormal experiences. And uh, I have different concepts of what I think paranormal things are. And uh, I don't know if uh, if I ever would get invited to go to a haunted house because I have a suspicion that everything would behave itself when I walked in. <laughs> so for some reason, well, because I think there's a symbiotic relationship between the mind of the person and what they're seeing. And I think the two feed into each other. Yeah. And so yep. if I can keep my mind free from that i don't think anything could feed into it so i don't think anything would happen if i went there but i'd love to be invited sometime the most haunted place in the world if they invite me to come along i might ruin it for them because <laughs> it might drive everything away well you know and it's these stories i love to hear from all from everybody in all walks of life because yeah. you know i mean i, I i've talked to we've talked to people that have experienced they have experiences on a daily basis they say like every day i've i see something and then there's like the rest of us i think because uh, well, I'm in the same boat you are, John. Uh, I've only seen a couple of things over all these years, uh, and I have a couple of stories to tell, and that's and that those are what the stories I have to tell, and that's and those are the ones I think that really hold a lot more water. Though um, are the people like, look, I, you know, like you said, I mean. Uh, you, you, you go somewhere, you may, you may root it for everybody else. Cause you, you know, you're, you're, you're more rooted maybe than other people are. Um, but it's those stories that you do have. And I have, I have my stories I said as well, uh, that I, that I'll tell people. And it, I, again, I only have a couple, but thank you, John. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that stuff for us. We really appreciate yeah, it's, that. It's all true. You know, I mean, I can't account for any of it, you know, stuff, but I'm certainly not going to speculate about what I saw. People yeah, that speculate, yeah. they get to some crazy things. I got a friend that believes in paranormal things and he's convinced that he's in touch with demons and stuff like oh, that. I don't, yeah, I don't know God. about that. <laughs> that sounds about normal in the, in the paranormal. <laughs> and then there are people that contact and then they say they've been taken up to the spaceships and they've been, your family's been taken up to the spaceships. I, again, I'm at the realm where that seems more like a psychological kind of uh, or psychotic experience as opposed to a paranormal experience. But I'm not going to rain on anybody's parade. <laughs> John, thank you so much for spending some time with us yeah, here tonight. This, this, this was really a great time. I hope you enjoyed yourself also, sir. I always enjoy myself. When my third book comes out, I'll contact you uh, again. Yeah. Please. Uh, yeah. Ghostly Talk. <laughs> Thank you,